Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, presented by Curriculum Track, a brief retreat from your daily routine to explore the latest thinking and practices from faith-based educators and instructional leaders from all over. Join us as we swap innovative ideas geared towards promoting your school's mission, and we'll keep the conversation as fresh as you like your coffee. Cindy Hunter, head of school for James Island Christian School, joins us in the Teacher's Lounge today. We're looking forward to hearing about her unique experiences and the insights those experiences have brought her about leadership and faith-based education. Cindy says she's always had a passion for education. She declared at a very young age that she would be a teacher and would one day have her PhD. Along the way, she discovered that she likes to figure out what isn't working and find ways to fix it, specifically in relation to student education, the school mission, and we are happy to hear some of those experiences as well today. She has a bachelor's in special education, a master's of arts in Christian education, an EDS in educational leadership and administration. And in her free time, somehow she's currently working to complete her PhD. She left the classroom to lead a professional development program for an American school on foreign soil, and then became the director there before coming back to the States to serve at uh, James Island Christian. Her latest charge has been revitalizing the school struggling with mission alignment and student enrollment, and she's happy to report that in recent years, their school has seen a 60% increase in enrollment and re-enrollment rate of 80%. So that's pretty exciting. Cindy, it's so nice to have you join us today in the Teacher's Lounge. What details would you add to your experiences? What did I leave out? So well, thank you, Michael, for having me. Um, it's been a journey. I call it multiple lives that I've had. I've been in the classroom for more than 10 years in the lay work with leaders who were not actually in a regular classroom, but more like in our Sunday schools and in our church education side. And then to find myself in a foreign school, which was a whole different experience than back here in Charleston. So it's just been eclectic um, and been fun to learn the different pieces and how they all fit together to make one big puzzle. Yeah, and I didn't realize that you did some work on the church side as well. Big difference between educational ministry and even church educational ministry. Yeah, so I was at an American school on foreign soil. We were about 100 students, kindergarten through 12th grade. At one point, there were eight students in the senior class who had eight native languages. Oh, wow. So a totally different experience, as well as the fact that none of us were paid teachers or administrators. We all worked as missionaries and thus raising your own support, which is a whole different level of commitment. And yep. so to work through the hard part of turning a school that's had some struggling things going on around when it's all, in essence, volunteers, you learn a lot about administration and leadership and what causes someone to want to follow. Yeah, and there's, in my understanding, maybe you can paint a clearer picture for those of us who haven't been involved with, you know, a foreign, an American school on foreign soil or an international school. But my understanding, there's always a lot of teacher turnover there. And so continuity of mission amongst all of that change can be a challenge. What are some of the other challenges for an international school like that? Just pure recruitment. When you ask someone to come teach and then say, oh, by the way, you need to figure out how to take your own money and get other people to give you money because I'm not going to pay you. And then I want you to fight through the visa process to get there. And they land and they have no Spanish. And so they're living in a culture where they're very much isolated. So not just creating an academic excellent place, but a healthy place so that the teachers also flourish. And learning to tell that mission story, that mission was 
so important that those you were recruiting bought into the mission to the point that they could also sell the mission. That's on top of not just adapting to a new school, but probably some culture shock, leaving behind family and friends, you know, probably in most cases. What a transition and uh, what a commitment to leadership that that would require. Now, we met because that school uh, was using curriculum track. And so that's how you and I got connected. And I know curriculum mapping has always played a big part in your leadership process at a school, both there in Spain, but also now in James Island Christian there in South Carolina. Tell us about your perspective on curriculum mapping and the value that you think it plays for school leadership and mission alignment. I was probably like the majority of your listeners at the beginning of accreditation required us to have course maps. And I was staring at three and five inch binders of papers that said what was and was not going to be taught in each course that had not been cracked open since the last accreditation. When we began to look at that and discovering that they weren't update, that they were really a checklist, we began to ask the question, why do we even need course maps? If the accreditation agencies think they're so important, what is it that's behind that? And specifically in the school in Spain, because of the turnover our first answer was just lets the next teacher know what they're supposed to be doing so that it's alignment from year to year versus, oh, I'll just teach whatever I want to teach. But the more that we got into them and bought into the fact that we needed them for more than just a checklist, the more they became a living document and more we realized that what was on those papers, if the teacher was buying into them and understood it, they were my protection of my mission. They were the thing that kept a classroom from straying away from why we existed. I can't be in the classroom every hour to hear what's being taught or to, and I don't check every teacher's lesson plans in detail. I don't think a leader should be a micromanager, but how do I have the confidence that what's happening in that classroom aligns with my mission? How do I make sure that it is exactly not how I would teach it? but what would be taught? Add the freedom of the teaching styles in the classroom, but put guardrails on what is being taught, be it from a spiritual point of view, is it the Christian worldview, or be it from a mission statement that says we partner with the home and the church, or be it from academic excellence. And so those course maps actually became the keeper of our mission when it came to the academic and biblical integration part of the classroom. Wow. And I love how you said that you decided to ask, why is this important to our accreditation process? It's not just to train the next guy. And as you delved into that, it sounds like you arrived at the place where teachers have to take ownership of their maps and of their instruction and of the role that they play in there. Right. Both times, the very first thing you say was, we're going to rewrite all of our course maps. And there are groans and there are moans, but we're overwhelmed and you've got too many things on my to-do list. What are you going to take off so I can do what you're asking me to do? But there's so much about how a leader approaches the task of writing the curriculum maps. And when I began to see them as a mission driver versus a checklist, mm. my staff began to see them as a mission driver. Mm-hmm. And then they, yeah, they grumbled and they mumbled and they felt overwhelmed, but the whole approach was different versus I want to, guarantee you're teaching what I want you to teach versus you're a support of the school. You understand why we're here. You know that one day you may not be here. Are you going to be a part of creating the legacy mm-hmm. of who the school is and what the school stands for? And those maps, that adoption of curriculum or agreeing what we're going to teach at each grade is part of that legacy. And then their attitude changes. Mm-hmm. 
And I like that you're using terms mission keeper, but also mission driver for curriculum mapping. Curriculum mapping is a mission keeper, mission driver. Compare and contrast that just a little bit. What do you mean by keeper? What do you mean by driver? Well, I think the keeper is that, you know, in today's world, there are so many things competing for what's going to be taught in the classroom for that 50 minutes. And so the maps keep us missionally aligned. We choose curriculum to write our maps around that align with our curriculum and align with our mission statement, align with our core values. I shared with you earlier, we looked at math curriculum and we ended up choosing what was not the strongest math curriculum, but because the strongest math curriculum was not aligned with our mission statement. Mm. We were not willing to do a course map around a piece of curriculum that was not going to keep our mission in that classroom. And so we went with a weaker curriculum and committed as administration to providing additional training and resources. And so in that sense, the course maps are a keeper. They keep it right there. Yeah. At the yeah. same time, they're driving it. They're pushing it forward. When we have new opportunities for teaching or we have new teachers who come in that our mission is not stagnant. Our mission statement talks about, you know, a academic excellence and a Christ-centered, biblically-driven environment. Everything's changing in our world. So how do our maps drive us to be more academically excellent? The topics that our students need in 2022 in regards to biblical worldview are different than what they meant or needed when you and I were in high school. And so the course maps drive us to ask those questions. Are we keeping our mission in front of us and accomplishing what we say our students will accomplish while they're students at our school? within that course map. And if not, then it's going to drive us to change, drive us to look for a different curriculum, drive us to look for a different textbook, drive us to add another chapter. And yet at the same time, keep us within the right boundaries. Yeah. As I chew on that, as you're talking, that is so powerful to help teachers change their mindset from a map is something I have to do to check a box, to comply with guidelines related to accreditation or whatever, to a map is an instrument I use to keep and drive our mission. What a powerful mental shift. And I'm sure your teachers were on board right away. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> no, they weren't. You know, they had to hear and see the vision. They had to understand why a map would do that. We've got these three and five inch notebooks. Why is that not enough? Even the question of why don't you just write them for us? If you want us to know what to teach, then you just do them and tell us what to do. So it took some persuading. I learned a lot from my first round. Um, hopefully your listeners can avoid some of my mistakes from round one and learn from round two because round two went so much better. We did it in bite-sized chunks and we did a lot of celebrating. And when they had their minimal maps and they went into year two after they had all been written in year one, not completed, but a good structure. And as soon as they began to see the actual tangible benefits of it, of new staff coming in and being aligned immediately or looking at our test results and saying, we didn't do as great in this department. Well, I wonder why our first place we went was, okay, if they were all missing fractions, let's go back to the maps and let's see where are our fractions at. A perfect example was that first graders learn to do subtraction by counting backwards. That's the very first skill set when they're understanding the concept of subtraction. There was an assumption that in kindergarten, they were learning to count backwards from mm. 20 to zero. Mm -hmm. So when they got to first grade, they were picking up on a skill that supposedly already existed and started applying it to their understanding of subtraction. And when that 
conversation came to the table, my kindergarten teacher said, we don't teach to count backwards. And so it was a simple concept and it took just a small tweak in the maps and in the objectives to find a way to get counting backwards introduced in kindergarten and mastered in first grade. And it's been amazing to watch what happens when they teach subtraction now, but they were skipping the foundational teaching because of an assumption. Yeah. And without the map, they never caught that assumption. So once they began to see the wins of the maps, then their buy-in to them was a whole different story. And as we then dug deep into the harder parts of the map, not the unit titles or the course objectives, they were game for it. And we partied a lot along the way to celebrate. (laughs) Uh, I just stumbled across a quote from Heidi Hayes Jacobs. She's the person we can all blame for bringing curriculum mapping mainstream. She wrote that curriculum mapping is not going to create a kumbaya moment. It's not going to just be build it and they will come, but it will give you a framework. And I'm obviously paraphrasing, but give you a framework for having those difficult conversations and identifying those problems. And I think that's what your little example demonstrates there. Let's talk about it. Let's fix it. And those are uh, conversations worth having. So where do we figure out where to put it in versus you need to teach this so I can do it? Or why did you not teach that type thing? It removed the feeling, the emotional side of addressing what we found to be a weakness. While at the same time, it's stressing the fact that these are our students and we're all responsible for them collectively. They're not yours. They're not mine. They're ours. So let's talk about how to steward them properly. To retain our students, there has to be that belief that because you had our kindergarten teacher, you're going to do even better in our first grade classroom and you're going to do even better in our second grade classroom. Yes, we want new students to join the groups every year so that we can fill every seat and really accomplish our mission. But there should be a distinct difference in students we've had for two, five, 10, 12 years, mm-hmm. and the students who are brand new to us, they should come in and be like, why do the kids already have this step mastered and this step mastered? And it's because we have created this vertical alignment in every course. And the only way you create that vertical alignment is to have those hard conversations. And the only way you have those hard conversations is giving a tangible, touchable visual to work from, which is the course map. Yeah. Yeah. I think that might be a good segue into ESOs. I wanted to talk to you about ESOs. I don't know if you recall, I can't even remember the context, but you and I were chatting about something or emailing about something, and you just casually mentioned ESOs could be a powerful driver for school mission. I wanted to come back to that and pick your brain on that a little bit. So I'm kind of throwing that out here a little bit unannounced, but in terms of school mission and in terms of curriculum mapping, the role that ESOs can play, not just as a box to check, but as a driver of school mission. What are your thoughts on that? If you remember that conversation, which you're thinking when you shared that. <laughs> a little vaguely remember it, but, and I almost threw out ESOs a little bit ago and I thought maybe the listeners may not know what an ESO is. The idea of expected student outcome. Tell us how you define them. So there's a ton of definitions out there. If you read the research, there's a ton of different looks at expected student outcomes. And they're another one of those things that are a buzzword in the accreditation worlds. And so they're looking for your ESOs and it can be just like course mapping in the, oh, wait, it's another list. And to be honest for us, we are just now in the stage of moving our ESOs from a checklist to a living thing. But the idea being that, what do you expect a student to look like when they leave you? So if I take our school Right now, we have four core values that we're Christ-centered, biblically-based, academically excellent, and service-driven. Well, what do I want a student to look like academically 
I could easily say, well, I want them to all be in the 90th percentile. I got to change my admissions policy because I'm accepting kids in the 30th and 40th percentile. I do not believe that as great a school as we are, I'm going to get every student to the 90th percentile. But I do want every student who graduates from my school to be a lover of learning that sees the value of learning. How do I measure that? How do I know I'm incorporating that into what I'm teaching? If that's my value, if that's what it means to be academically excellent. Another one we're using right now is leaders are readers. And I believe every student in my building can be a leader in some sense. Are they learning to love to read? Not just to read, but to love to read. Mm -hmm. And how do I measure that? And how do I ensure I'm teaching toward that? So part of our mapping process was to actually pull our expected student outcomes into our course maps. Mm -hmm. And to say, when I'm teaching a chapter on subtraction and counting backwards, how does that play into my expected student outcome? If a student's going to be at my school... How does learning to count backwards and subtraction equal the student I want to exit from me? What is their experience at our school doing every step of the way in every class, not just Bible class for the Bible core values or math for the academic core values, but every course we're taking, how does what we're teaching get us to that end point? I don't get to just wake up today and say, well, I hope they are lifelong learners, or I hope they learn to question their faith and Hoping doesn't do anything. Hoping doesn't have a plan. Right. The course map, it changes that from I hope they will to I've got a plan to get them there. With both the tangible things like I want everybody to be interested in reading, you can measure that. When's the last time you picked up a book on your own? Yeah. To I want you to have a lifelong desire to learn. That's yeah. a little harder to measure. Yeah. But have I intentionally put in my course map places where we get to foster a lifelong love of learning? But without reflecting my expected student outcomes, I don't give opportunities for lifelong learning. I give opportunities to learn my specific task. Yeah. Or I need you to write an essay and explain to me 1 Corinthians 13. What does it mean? Yeah. But on the other hand, what if my outcome says I want students to question their faith? What if the assignments are leading toward a safe place to question their faith so that they have a concrete understanding and ability to send? Yeah. Like assignments look different. Yeah. I'm still studying the book of First Corinthians. Yeah. But the assignment of that outcome is very different than I want you to be able to speak on this specific chapter. I want you to be able to defend the process of the creating of the first church. That's a different type thing. And so those outcomes have to become part of the map. Yeah. Or I'm back to teaching in isolation. I'm only teaching math for the sake of math. No, I'm teaching math because God is a God of order. Because if you don't understand that two plus two is always four, you can't understand that God has absolute truth. Because if there's no absolute truth, then two plus two can be whatever answer I want to put on the paper today. Um, that ESOs are helping deepen the relevance of instruction. This is why we're learning these concepts. This is how this ties to a bigger picture. Does it help your teachers in that way? I think it does, but I think the ESOs actually help the leader in the administration more than the teacher. Okay. Because we're making decisions. We're signing off on those maps or... We are the final decision maker in the curriculum or on the field trip or the service project. So the teacher doesn't always have that big vision, but as administrators and leaders, every decision that comes across my desk ought to be asking about the mission and about the outcome yeah. and how do we use those things for the biggest thing to accomplish our goals. Yeah. Powerful. That's good stuff. We didn't meet like this today to talk about curriculum mapping all this this is great stuff i think we were trying to focus more on some of your leadership experience and i think you brought a lot of that into in the context of mapping so i think that's powerful 
But let's talk a little bit more about some of the wisdom you gleaned as a leader. And tell us a little bit about your, first of all, talk to us about your PhD program. What are you studying? What are you getting from that? How does that help to equip you? So I have had two lifelong dreams. One was to have my PhD or my doctorate. I'd like to be Dr. Hunter one day. And the other is to write a book and maybe my dissertational mark off that will be done. My husband says, this is my last degree. This, this might also be the third time he said, this is my last degree. So we shall see. For me, I've got that extra degree that many people skip of the specialist degree, which is a master's plus 30. And I did that degree while living in Spain and attending Appalachian here on the East Coast in Eastern Standard Time. And the classes were synchronous. Oh, so wow. I did class from midnight to 3 a.m. for two years to get that specialist. And then COVID robbed me of my graduation and thus why I need to do my PhD now. Yeah. I can walk across the stage. But when I look at that program, as well as my doctorate program that I'm doing now, I think the biggest difference in this program versus all of my education prior to now is that it is not facts. I'm not learning a bunch of data or even a bunch of strategies. But having those conversations that equal what about you and the why and the whatnot, that causes me not to be a leader that follows a textbook of a leader does A, B, C, and D, but more of a crafting a leadership style that follows best practices. And I'm still Cindy in my personality in the same way I was Cindy in the classroom and I might teach reading different than Susie next door to me. And we both were teaching the exact same curriculum. The higher levels of education have allowed me to find my own personality, mm -hmm. but yet use best practices. And it has caused me to question some of the things I've done in the past. The second time around is going a whole lot better than the first time around. If nothing else, it causes me to do a lot more asking about why do I do that? Or why do I not do that? Or what would have been a better way? It's teaching me to, to not assume I've got it all together. I can probably anticipate your answer here, but I can hear a lot of school leaders saying, I don't have time to chase after that advanced degree or another degree. How would you respond to that? I don't know that it's about the degree. Mm -hmm. For me, the letters at the end were essential. But if a leader says, I don't have time to be learning, then the priorities are wrong. Mm -hmm. Why do schools exist? for learning. What do we expect our teachers to do? We expect them to be better teachers every year. If we are not modeling that in some form or fashion, then we're not going to get it back from them. My goal for the whole time I'm doing my doctorate degree is to always be reading something that's not required. Am I picking up books related to my role of people who have learned why should I make the mistakes if I can learn from somebody else who's already made the mistakes? Yeah. And am I involving my rest of my leadership in those conversations, whether it's a quick text message or passing the book along, or last year I had my whole administrative team read a book together. And we met every week and discussed that next chapter. And it was a 15 minute meeting. It wasn't like it took forever, but it set the tone and the staff knew we were doing that. And it also put us all together on the same page, but there's something about challenging yourself to question your leadership that makes you a better leader. So if you don't have time to be reading the book, at least one book at a time, or regularly listening to a group of podcasts, or in an accountability group with like-minded administrators from your region, then I challenge you to put something down. A good insight there. Why are things so different today than they were even just a couple of decades ago? When you said that, I, was trying, I thought your question was going to be, well, tell me one thing that was different. Yeah. And so my brain started going there. And so for me to graduate with my teaching certificate 
don't laugh, I had to pass a handwriting exam, both on paper that I could write perfect Zaner Blosser handwriting on paper, as well as on the chalkboard. Oh, wow. And let's just say that's not in any curriculum anymore. <laughs> Technology is often our easy answer, but mm-hmm. in the last... 30 years or more, the technology has changed a lot of our teaching, but it's more what our students are exposed to. So my kindergartners come in now with more knowledge of certain topics than they used to. In fact, I have kindergartners come in who struggle to play. Well, play is part of our kindergarten curriculum. Yeah. But they have been raised in not as much imagination or not as much active play because of just the lifestyle changes. So I think it's not the education has changed because we use a lot of classical curriculum here. We've gone back to the old school for a lot of things, but what knowledge or lack of knowledge that our kids bring into the classroom, am I preparing everybody to go to a university? Am I preparing them to go to where God created them to go? So I think it's more about the cultural social change that technology was a piece of, but not necessarily the root cause of all those changes. That and we don't teach handwriting anymore. Yeah. (laughs) I compare the cartoons and video games that I had access to as a young child to those that my children have access to. And I'm just amazed at, there seems to be a a great, to a large extent, there seems to be a greater emphasis on learning in the games and cartoons than there was like, what did anybody learn from Coyote and Roadrunner? Whereas Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood or whatever my kids enjoyed, a lot more educational value than some of the things we saw. So there's a cultural piece to that too. Learning and entertainment were much more separated in the past. I grew up watching Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, and that was on the educational television channel. And that was where you watched it with rabbit ears. But then I would flip over and I watched the cartoons as my entertainment. Yeah. They were not as integrated as they are now, which has its pros and its cons now. I think there's a lot more entertainment required for education now because of that mix. So now it changes what the classroom has to look like or the tools or the methods we're using because of that. Yeah. And I think an extension of that to technology and so forth, just the brain research that we have access to these days and understanding more how the brain works and how that applies to pedagogy, I think is really interesting. And seeing it from both sides, because you pick up any research article and it's going to talk about screen time. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to find the articles from a Christian point of view. We often find the articles about the negative of screen time because of what they're going to be exposed to from the moral compass picture, which is an essential piece of deciding whether or not students should or shouldn't have exposure to certain things. There's so much more research now coming out about what happens with extended technology use of screen time and figuring out is the payoff worth it in the classroom if they're getting it at home, partnering with the home in regards to those things, as well as the research on social and emotional development. Every decision we make has a pro and a con. I do want to get to back to your leadership. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think one of the thrusts of your current doctoral work is raising up teacher leaders. Is that right? Leadership among faculty. Would you share a little bit about that? The high school that we're getting ready to expand to is our leadership academy. Okay. Believing that every person is a leader. Okay. And so... Our curriculum in the new high school is around that concept. But the whole thing is you imitate the leader in front of you. Okay. And so first off, you know, in our curriculum, Christ being the ultimate leader we want to 
to follow. But then as we're following him, who's following you? Somebody is looking at you to be a leader like you. So starting with myself, modeling those leadership skill sets, and then passing leadership responsibilities to my staff who are going to lead however I led in the good and the bad. And so am I transparent enough to tell them, you know, I messed up the way I handled that? Or are we having the goods and the bads discussions in such a way that those staff who you're building up as leaders see the process, see the questioning, see the, instead of it just being a dictate of, of something. So for example, right now we have outgrown our building. We've outgrown our number of hours in a day. We are blessed at the moment. It is a problem, but we are blessed. And we have parent conference day coming up. And our middle school has reached the point that for every parent to see every middle school teacher in a single day is impossible unless the parent conferences are five minutes. And so the middle school teachers brainstormed an idea of how they thought they should solve it, the problem, and came back to me with an answer. And the answer would have been against our mission. It would have allowed whoever signed up first to get an appointment and not everyone. And that's not, we, we say we partner with the home and the church. So it would have been easy for me to just send them an email back and says, nope, that doesn't work. Here's what we're going to do. Yeah, That would be the quickest and the easiest solution. Actually, the easiest solution would have been just to tell them from the beginning and to skip that stage. Yeah. But instead I went back and we had a conversation of missionally, I can't tell 50% of my parents that they're not going to get to meet with you mm-hmm. or that they're going to have to take off work on another day to meet with you after they've taken off work to meet on conference day with their other children's teachers that doesn't align with who we are. So given that, and that that's going to be what we're about, let's brainstorm another solution. And we came up with a much better solution, but it took a lot longer on my part and a lot more patience and a lot more of just laying it down and not dictating. Yeah. But the intentionality of that was to teach them the unseen part of leadership of what was my filter and how did I get there? Because what I want them to do is to learn as they're raising up people who are following them, whether it's a new teacher who comes on staff in the middle school team or a student who has obvious leadership skills is, okay, why did she think that way? What was the thought process behind the no? And for them to see that they can emulate it. But if I always said, nope, that doesn't work. Sorry, we're going to do this. What they emulate then is this dictator model. And that's not the leader I am nor the leader I want to grow. So do you have a process for going from brand new teacher to mentor teacher leader in your school? What does that look like? It is not as structured as it needs to be. It's definitely a work in progress. And this year we grew to the extent that I have a significant number of new staff, more than we've ever had. And given the whole world of education right now, I have a lot of brand new teachers mm-hmm. or teachers who left the public school and came to private school, which is a whole different world. And I have two teachers who left middle school and came to elementary. How many different ways can you be a new teacher? Where do you find structure in all of those? So we spend a good deal of time very initially back in those course maps because they don't care about the rest of the piece until they understand what they're going to teach. And so that's really where we start. And then all of them are assigned a specific staff member that has been here for a while as their person to go ask a question of. So those first questions of where do I, what happens when the copy is jammed? Who do I go ask? They're not going to come ask the administrator that because they're still trying to figure out, is it okay to ask the administrator that question? But they're all assigned a specific teacher. There's a lot of mentor models out there. It's not really a mentor in that they're spending that time pouring in them and helping being better teachers. It's more a safe place for them to get over that first 30, 60 days of 
I'm afraid my boss is going to think I'm not a good teacher if I ask this question. We then do two other aspects that I think help in that one is if they're in their first two years at our school, whether they're an experienced teacher with 50 years of experience or fresh out of college, they meet either weekly or biweekly, depending on their experience level and needs with the Dean of Students to just discuss, what are you doing in your classroom? Tell me what's working. Tell me what's not working. Many of those conversations are 10 or 15 minutes long, but sometimes they stretch into, can somebody go cover this class because we need to finish this conversation? But those conversations open the door to transparency. They create safety, security, and it's with the right person. And so that is happening. And then this year we added a new, there is a book and I can't think of the author's name. I'll let you fill that in, but it is letters to a first year teacher. It's hard to find anymore, but he goes through every month of the year and he writes a letter to first year teachers. And it's appropriate about what you would normally be doing in a school year at that point. And so we now do in lieu of staff meeting once a month, that group of teachers comes together and we cover the topic of that chapter. So we're getting ready to do parent conferences so that we had teachers who just survived last year, their first year of parent conferences <laughs> share that it's okay to be nervous. Yeah. It's okay to be worried about it. And then we had teachers who've been doing it for a long time, give them some hints to get through it. And then the administration spoke up and said, okay, now here are the expectations. But having the teachers serve in those different roles is what, then you start to see who's a natural at and ought to be brought in for teacher orientation week to give these kind of things who needs to be coached more about how to mentor because they've taken it too far and then you pour in in individually based on what coming out of those opportunities versus this blanket plan every new teacher gets a mentor teacher and since i got six new teachers this year i gotta have six experienced teachers what if i have six who are really skilled at mentoring absolutely so it sounds like your structure is, just to push back, sounds like you do have a structure. <laughs> sounds like to me, layer upon layer with a lot of flexibility, a lot of opportunities to try and to talk and to bounce things off. I think that sounds like a great plan. Yeah, I live in a box. I have four straight sides and four 90 degree angles and one door. That is my life. That is really my stretch as leadership is that doesn't work. That's not a really good model for people's side of the job. It is a great model for the policy side, for getting processes in place and all. But where I'm stretched as a leader is how do I have some curvy walls in there and maybe an extra window? And maybe there's not three check marks on accomplishing this. Yeah. Maybe we spend two years on level one and I'm like, the paper says by year three, you should be done with this. And year three, we're still back at point one. But I am finding the more I live within the guidelines live within this broad process that does have thought process and there is rationale behind it. And that I'm not ignoring the thinking behind it. It's not just throw a dart with my eyes closed. It does begin to look a little more loosey goosey or a little more flexible. And yet it's also more productive. Yeah. It's getting me where I want to go faster. Yeah. I think we've all had leaders that just kind of carbon copy what they read in a book somewhere and force it on their current situation. And everyone's just left kind of chafing about how do I fit into this box? But nobody enjoys that. And I would take that and go back to your question about how does my PhD fit into all of this? It is in those conversations in the classroom that it goes from this author just said, do this to let's talk reality. How does that really look here? So we did the book I shared as an administrative staff. The whole reason behind it was it would have been easy in that book that we were talking about to go way far off and then not actually 
done what the spirit of the book was or what the book would have fit. But in those conversations, in those pushbacks, what do you think about? I meet with a group of head of schools of like-minded other schools in the area every other week. And it's often, it's everything from last week, we spent a half an hour discussing, do you do a grandparents day? The books say in marketing and in donor management, you need to have your grandparents on campus. Yeah. So yeah, let's do a grandparents day. In the end, we actually all decided not to do a grandparents day. Not because we don't think we won't want our grandparents, but that's an example of if I had followed the book, we're in a capital campaign right now. If I'd followed the book, I'd had a grandparents day and it would align right there. But when I began to ask and to question the culture and the purpose, it began to then say align to what we do. Does it make sense? Does it work? No, it didn't. And it came up some other things that we were going to incorporate that we had never thought about doing. But it's that conversation, that questioning. And to leaders and especially Prince, the top guy at the private school, if you are doing it from an island, you're going to do exactly that. You're going to pick up a book and incorporate it. And it's, it works or doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, then you wait for the next book and you pick it up. Find a group, find that accountability, find those conversations that are leading to filtering it through and picking the one or two main ideas out of the book that really apply to your culture. And then laying the rest aside doesn't mean you're bad because you didn't follow the whole book. Yeah, but what works best for us. Right. What makes sense for us. That's good. With your permission, I'm going to ask two more questions, if that's okay. Right. (laughs) (laughs) More broad, no specific answers. I've enjoyed our conversation. But you shared a lot about your desire to be an educator from early days and then church and school ministry. What makes faith-based education different and worth the investment from your perspective? What makes it different is we are, I believe education changes lives. And if you believe that, then what you're teaching them becomes incredibly crucial. If you look at all of the leaders in the world, they may not have university degrees. They may not have some high set of credentials, although many do. Every one of them will tell a part of their story has to do with they were learners. And it was that learning that caused them to reach greatness. Education is what changes our world. Education is what changes our students and our people. And if you believe that, then you have to believe in the place where your kids are going to school. And then the question comes, how do you want your children to be changed? They spend more time in a classroom and at school than they spend anywhere else. Mm -hmm. If you look at the number of waking hours this child has in seven days, the classroom is where the largest number of hours is spent. What do you want them to look like when they come out of that school? What are you willing to expose them to or not expose them to? And faith-based education is just that, that there is the incorporation of learning in an excellent fashion so that they are going to be different. Mm -hmm. But not only are they going to be able to do calculus, they're going to be able to have a personal relationship with Christ. They're going to be able to defend their faith. They're going to be able to open that Bible and study it and question and learn from it versus listening to some TV preacher who may or may not actually be teaching truth. They're going to know when it's not true. They are going to walk away. It's not about what I teach them in the classroom as far as facts. It's about what I've taught them about growing up about what they've learned to become, who they've become, and they become who they are based on what they're exposed to. And faith-based education exposes them to both excellent academics. Our kids will go to the colleges of their choice. They're also going to leave grounded in their faith. Michael, you probably let your kids have one set of restrictions of what they can and cannot watch on television. And your best friend probably has a different set. 
and they come to school together and they're talking about, I saw this, I saw this because of that conversation, both faith-based families opens the door to the non-bubble conversations. And who do you want answering those questions? Someone who's aligned with what you believe or someone who's going to interject something from outside. We deal with this exact same things. Our teenagers have the same temptations. They're exposed in the world without even having to go into other settings to sexual temptations, to alcohol temptations. They have the exact same temptations. Faith-based education gets to deal with those in a way that aligns with what you're dealing with at home. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. No, that's a great answer. Second question, and in a minute, I'm going to give you a minute to answer this one. If you had a minute to just challenge or equip other school leaders, what would you say? Ask for help. Find that group that you can say, I'm struggling with this. What do you think? Or I don't know how to do this. There are no single program that equips a school leader to do all that you have to do. We are the accountants, the HR specialist, the curriculum specialist, the politics. We are everything. There is no program that does that. Admit what you don't know and go searching for the resources or the programs or the people that do know and join them in the support and exchange of what you bring to the table, what they bring to the table. I heard someone say one day that God never created you to be a well-rounded person, but he created you to be part of a well-rounded team. And as leaders, we can feel very isolated and on an island and take your part of the well-rounded team and find the rest of the team. That'd be my number one advice. Sounds like you're telling them to find people to learn from. Yep. And to teach. Yeah. When I meet, I learn there are things I bring to the table that the other heads of school learn from me. And I always walk away with either another book I want to read or an answer to one of my troubles, or if nothing else, somebody else who at least says, I feel your misery. And there's a lot in shared misery at times that makes it able to come back and push through it. Yeah. This has been a great conversation, Cindy. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day uh, to share your your thoughts with us. And we were grateful for the influence that you have in Christian education and with curriculum track schools and beyond. So thank you for your time. This was fun. I love to talk about education. I could talk to you all day long, but thank (laughs) you for allowing me to share the lessons I've learned. Our pleasure, truly. Thanks for dropping by the Curriculum Track Teachers Lounge today. We hope this conversation helped you feel more connected to like-minded educators and provided you with a thought, an idea, or even just a smile as you seek to do all that you can for all of your students. If you found this conversation to be helpful, do us a favor and rate this podcast. Also, be sure to share it with others. We would be grateful to hear from you with any ideas, questions, or thoughts that you may have. You can find ways to connect with us at curriculumtrack.com.